You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. solid weeks digging through these hunting catalogs, working up a list and adding up the cost. And we compound bows and full camo and, and uh, canvas tents and night vision goggles. We need all of it. And how much money is it going to cost us? And if mom pays us $5 an hour for work around the house, how long would we have to work uh, to, to accumulate the thousands of dollars that we had already spent in our minds? Why? Because those things would make us happy. Those things would finally, oh, if we could get those things, life would be complete. We'd be there. We'd have it made. And we fall for it. It works remarkably well because we are so insecure. We are so terrified of missing out that we might not be having the, the fullest life that we could maybe have. We're not, we're not having the, the best, happiest, most satisfied life available. We constantly feel that pull. That we could just have, do, see, accomplish just a, just a little bit more. Just that, then, then I'd be satisfied. And, and we chase that. Some people make it a long ways down that road. For some reason, YouTube has decided that, that I need to watch more videos about super yachts. Oh, my word. Like what you can't get for $300,000 a week uh, with a fully staffed super yacht. Um, I'm in. Like, sign me up. Somebody's going to have to foot the bill. But I'm, I, wow. And yet we know, even among the rich and the famous in, in wealth and luxury, they never seem to find what they're looking for. There always seems to be one more step. One, there's something else. That completed life is just perpetually out of reach. And the reason for that, as we see in Colossians chapter 2, that that, that complete life, that satisfied life, the life of peace and fulfillment, it's not found in the things of this world. Those things are found in the new life, the new life that is found only in Christ. Big claim, I know. So let me uh, open God's word for us and show you um, from, from Colossians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 6 to 10. Um, let me read it for us. Therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule, and authority. Would you pray with me as we come to God's word together? Father, we have sung of your grace and mercy toward us, your kindness to us in Christ, the wonder 
of your amazing grace, the firm foundation that we have for our salvation in Christ. God, would you be working that out in us? Oh God, that we would walk in him, rooted and built up, I pray. Lord, open our eyes this morning. You know um, we are slow to hear, slow to understand. Lord, we cry out, help us. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. Be at work in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray for my words that you would take this feeble tongue and use it for your glory, that your Holy Spirit would speak uh, your truth, that we might together be uh, amazed by your grace and transformed, Lord, that we would see the life that is in Christ and walk in it. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we talk about this feeling of satisfaction, this, this mythical place of being able to say, now my life is complete. Paul's making the argument, you'll only find that, that fulfillment is in the new life that is found in Christ. It's the the theme that I think that kind of ties this book together. And he starts with this simple command, um, point one, remain in Christ. Remain in Christ. Look at verses six and seven again. Therefore, As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Remain in Christ. Paul says, therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. Now, that first line makes a a massive assumption. Massive assumption. It assumes that is true of you, of us, that we have received Christ Jesus the Lord. Now that that title is significant. Christ Jesus the Lord. That matters. When we talk about Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, it goes both ways. Um, That's not just Jesus' last name. That's a title. It tells us something about who he is. Um, Christ or Christos in the Greek, um, it means anointed one, chosen one. The the Hebrew equivalent is uh, Mashiach, Messiah. He's the chosen one. You have to remember that Jesus was actually a really common name in Israel. And so it makes sense to us to hear, you know, trust in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus. Um, We don't have a whole lot of confusion uh, about who this Jesus is, Um, but if you were in, in, in Paul's day, I would imagine someone told you, um, trust in Steve. Put your faith in Jared. Well, which one? Wait, wait, wait a second. Help me out. So this title, Christ, uh, distinguishes this Jesus, this Jesus who walked among us, this Jesus that, that we're talking about. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And of course, that's pointing back to the Old Testament, saying he's the chosen one of God. He's the one who's come to fulfill all of the promises of the Old Covenant, fulfill all of the the foreshadowing of the the feasts and the sacrifices in the temple. It all comes together in the Messiah, and, and Jesus is that Messiah. He's the Christ. Wrapped up in that idea is the fulfillment of all those promises. He's the Savior. We are sinful people who deserve God's wrath. We need saving. 
And that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins that we could be forgiven. He came as the the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, quite literally. That's what he was promised and chosen to do. So as we talk about receiving Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, we're talking about receiving his saving work. That, That we come as sinners saying, I need help, and he provided He did what I could not do. He paid the price that I could not pay. But then, he's not only Christ Jesus, he is Christ Jesus the Lord. And Lord, in its basic sense, simply means master, ruler, king, sovereign. But Lord was also the word that they used in the place of Yahweh. Their Jewish tradition was not to speak the name Yahweh, and so they used Lord in its place the very name of God. And so I think Paul here intends both meanings. This Jesus, he is the the promised Messiah. He's the one who who was promised would come, would rescue us out of our sin. Um, But he's also God himself. Remember back to to chapter one. He's the image of the invisible God. He's God with skin on. And because of that, he is also our master, our master. Ruler, He is authority over us. He, he created all things. He is over all things. He's the head of the church. That's who this Jesus is. And so Paul, when he says that as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, that's crucial. If you have not received Christ Jesus the Lord, if you've not recognized him for who he is, both as Savior and and as sovereign, then this whole conversation of new life, this whole, this whole looking to, to fullness in him, that's irrelevant. That doesn't matter for you. You need to receive him. And some people, I think, work hard to, to separate these two. As if you could have Jesus as Messiah, as your, as your Savior, but not have him as Lord. You can be forgiven of your sin, but not see him as your master, not own him as your Lord. Paul doesn't allow for that. This is who Jesus is. This is the very nature of who he is. He is both Messiah and Lord, and you can reject him as Messiah and Lord, or you can receive him as Messiah and Lord, but you can't have half of Jesus. You can't split him down the middle. You can't take half of who he is and leave half of who he is behind. Do you know him for who he really is? Have you trusted him as Savior? Have you submitted your life to him as Lord? Now, that's not to say we obey perfectly. It's not even to say we even fully understand what it means to submit to him as Lord and what all that will entail, but we submit nonetheless. And if you've not, then you just need to stop right there. You need to know that, that everything else Paul is going to say hinges on that. It's only for those who have received Christ Jesus the Lord. And I would just implore you today, listen to the wonders of what God offers to those who do. And today, to receive him, to trust in him, to submit to him. Now, if you are among those who can say, yeah, I, I have received Christ Jesus the Lord. I know who you're talking about. That's who he is. He is Messiah. He is God himself. He is Lord over me. Um, 
This right here is the the thesis statement of Paul's letter. This is the the single sentence summary of, of all that Paul is writing. If you, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. If you've been paying attention, you'll notice um, this is the first imperative in the entire book. Um, That caught me off guard. Um, If you knew that already, congratulations. You're paying more attention than I was. Um, It's the first time Paul has said, do this. I had to go back and scour through. It's true. He's not commanded a single thing until this point. Walk in him. Walk in him. The new life. The life of fulfillment, of, of satisfaction, of joy is the life that remains in Christ. That walks, lives, continues in him. It's not just a one-time decision, right? It's not just kind of a done and over with in a moment. I, I got that finished. Now I'm, now I'm going to heaven, so I'll get on with my life and do my own thing. No, it's this ongoing day in, day out, living in him as Savior, as we continue to repent of sin, as we continue to trust in him and living in him as Lord, as we continue to to submit our will to his, to give him uh, control over our lives. Verse 7 then gives us the details. Here's what this looks like as you remain in Christ. And he says remaining in Christ is, is four things. First is rooted in him. That That verb there is in the perfect tense. You have been rooted. It's a past action that has kind of continuing consequences. In order to remain in Christ, you have to have been rooted in him. You have to be in him in order to remain in him. But that word rooted, I think, gives us a beautiful picture. What does it mean to have your roots in Jesus? What do roots do? Well, they dig down into the soil. They hold firm. They draw their nutrients, their life, their energy from that soil. If you're rooted in Christ, it means you're you're inseparably connected to him. My life is is drawing its source from him, is fed and and nourished. My my spiritual energy and strength comes from him. John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, whoever stays connected, whoever stays rooted to me, He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So it's this idea of of drawing our life from him, um, but it also has the idea of of stability, right? Something that's deeply rooted, it's it's immovable. Sitting on my back deck Friday afternoon, working through this text, and if you remember Friday afternoon, it was windy. And there's a a group of kids playing out in the park behind our place and the the wind is blowing their hats off and blowing their ball around. I had to take the tablecloth off the table because it was blowing away, put my papers inside, they're flapping. But between our house and the park uh, is a large row of poplar trees. Branches spread out wide, I don't know, maybe 80 feet tall. I don't know if that's an exaggeration. It's tall, big leaves on their branches at this time of year. And I can't imagine the force of the wind on those trees, especially over the the leverage of the height of them. I didn't go over and measure, but I don't think one of those trees moved a single inch. They didn't move. They weren't budged. Why? They're rooted, firmly rooted. They're holding fast. A new life where where true joy and and fulfillment is found, it starts firmly rooted in him. Not moving, 
stable, drawing our life from him. Um, but not only that, Paul goes on to say, uh, built up in him. And so he kind of switches metaphors. His English teacher would not have been happy with him. Um, so the, the, the tree is, is rooted in Christ, but then it becomes a building that's, that's built up. Think of a, a stone building with firm layer upon layer, growing taller and stronger, rooted on a firm foundation, now grows, robust, strong. Thirdly, then, established in the faith, just as you were taught. Now, I think the ESV gets the, the wording right here, and I think, it's, I think it's significant. It's not about their faith. It's not about the, the extent of their belief. They're not, they're not established in what they think. They're established in the faith, the gospel, the truth. Notice uh, he says, you're, you're established in the faith just as you have been taught. That which you have been taught, which he's speaking of his teaching of the gospel through Epaphras taken to Colossae. I'm saying you've been established in that. You're established in the word of truth, the gospel. This true unaltered gospel. They, they were to know and to hold firm to what they had been taught. So, so rooted, built up, established. That's where this, this complete life begins. Do, do you see those things in your life? Is that true of you? Have you received Jesus as, as Messiah and as Lord? And are you, are you walking in him? Now, we start as infants. Um, but anyone who has a child knows that infant doesn't stay small for very long. It begins to grow. Soon it starts pushing you around. My kids are getting to that stage. I've got to put them in their place quick before they get too strong. Um, but we grow up, we get bigger, we get more robust in our faith, rooted and built up. Or are you just kind of casually connected to Jesus? Yeah, I guess I'm a Christian. I, I do the Sunday morning thing, um, but the weekdays, are, those are mine, right? And, and, and at least, you know, once or twice a month I go to church. I, I grew up Christian. Most of my friends are Christian, I guess, kind of process of elimination. I'm, I'm Christian too, um, are you rooted in that? Are you built up in that? Are you established in the faith? Um, this points back, I think, to those signs of maturity from, from the end of chapter 1. Strong hearts knit together by the, the bond of, of love. The full assurance of understanding and knowledge of Christ. Just as you received Christ Jesus in, as Lord, just as you started in Him, keep going. Don't, don't remain an, an infant in the faith. Grow up. Get stronger. Don't be complacent. Don't just coast. Walk in Christ. Are you, are you growing in Him? Some practical encouragements. Come. Come Sunday morning. Gather. Again, I would just encourage those who are joining on Facebook to say we, we love you. We're glad to be able to offer this. And we know there are different reasons that make it necessary in different, different lives. But, but the gathering is significant. The, the Facebook live thing is a, is a, is a weak stopgap fill-in because of a crazy season, but, but it's gathering that we need. And so we would just encourage you in that. And are you coming not just every now and then, not just kind of wake up in the morning and, and say, should we go to church today? I don't know, I'm kind of tired. We should, maybe we should do breakfast, a big breakfast instead. Or, you know, I, I think, man, when my wife and I were first married, um, we just decided once. 
Sunday mornings we go to church. That's it. We never had to decide another Sunday in our lives. Are we going to church or not? That decision was made one time. And it has carried on. We go to church. No, we're not 100% church attendance. Stuff happens. Life is chaotic. We get that. But come. Come faithfully. And don't just come as a spectator. Don't just come as one outside looking in. Come and join in the fellowship. Get to know people. Serve in the church. Get, become part of the body. And not just Sundays. What about when you go home? How are you growing and being built up in the faith? Are you, are you reading the word? And a lot of people find that intimidating. It's a, it is. It's a, it's a big book. And the pages are small. And the writing is small. And you start reading, you get into Leviticus, and you go, what have I signed up for? Um, it's okay, start small. Just get up 20 minutes earlier than usual. Start in the New Testament. Read a chapter a day, and, and just soak in it. Just, just read it over. Maybe you got to read it a couple times to grasp it. Spend some time in prayer. Just talk to God about what you, what you see there, what you see in Him. Worship Him. Ask for help in the things that you see Him commanding that you know you can't do perfectly. Just converse with God about it and hopefully you don't stay there but that's a fine place to start what about small groups you have the chance in in community to take God's word to take this sermon preached, this text from this morning and and come back together again in the middle of the week with brothers and sisters who know you and love you and and say what does this mean in my life how do I be sure that I'm a, I'm a doer of the word and not just a hearer only, so deceiving myself? We have the chance to, to pray about it and talk about it with people that will spur you on, that will hold you accountable, that will help you in your walk. Once a month, we, we hit the pause button on small groups, and the goal is to have everybody gathered here for prayer Wednesday night. And we just spend some time praying together. Spend some time before the Lord. A little bit of worship, and a bunch of time just just praying together. It's a sweet time. It's a blessed time. I think it's probably um, the most important gathering in the life of the church. Come. Come and check it out. Come and be a part of it. There's a reason we plan these things. As, as elders, we don't just kind of say, how many events can we throw on the calendar? How many things can we get people to do? Um, we don't get any spiritual bonus points for getting extra people uh, in different places or, or adding extra events. Um, the reason we encourage these things is, is that they're significant pieces of growth in the Christian life. We, we want to see you rooted and built up in Christ, established in the faith, thriving in your faith, walking with Christ in the fullness of, of new life. And you'll notice I left off the last one, the last of, of Paul's list. I think it's the outcome. I think it's the kind of the goal here. Abounding in thanksgiving. Abounding in thanksgiving. Let your, your rootedness and your, and your growth in the Lord begin to overflow in thankfulness. Walking in Him, rooted and built up, establishing the faith, um, we begin to see what the Lord has done for us and who He is. And that ought to begin to transform our hearts. And notice how quickly um, thankfulness counters that, that, that sense of discouragement, that sense of dissatisfaction. It also insulates against the, the coming false teaching. I'm, I'm thankful for what Christ has done. I'm rooted in this. I'm so busy worshiping him. I'm not interested in some other way. I'm just 
I'm just grateful for what Christ has done. So we pour out in, in thanksgiving as we rejoice in Christ for what he has done. So let's ask, what exactly has he done? What are we talking about here? This passage here is very similar to Paul's prayer back in, in chapter 1. Um, Grant preached this as we were beginning through this book. Um, starting in verse 9, uh, it says, And so from the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Here's what, here's what Paul wants for these believers. This is what he's praying for this church. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Do you hear the overlap here? So consistent. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for endurance and patience with joy. So you know, tons of overlap. He's, he's praying for them, what he's about to command from them. Um, but in chapter 1 as well, he ends in thanksgiving. Giving thanks to the Father. But he elaborates who has qualified you to share in the inheritance in the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what we're thankful for. That's huge. That, that, that God in Christ has, has taken us who were, who were disqualified, who were outside of his grace, who had no business having any of his favor, and he has qualified us. He delivered us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his son. The kingdom of darkness in which we were once captive and condemned to die. And into the kingdom of Christ where there is abundant life and riches. We've been redeemed. We've been forgiven. Ephesians 1 that we read at the beginning of the service talks about that, that inheritance that we have in Christ and all the blessings involved in that. And then uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, he picks up again on that, on that theme. Listen to this verse. This verse is mind-blowing. So that, he's, he's rescued us by his grace, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his kindness, of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save you? Why did he rescue us? Why the cross? So that he could show off. So that he could put on display the immeasurable, literally unmeasurable, unending, infinite wealth of his grace. And how is he going to do it? How is he going to display how good he is? In kindness toward us. Wow. It's unbelievable. God is infinitely committed to the display of his glory. Read through his word. You'll see it time and time again. For the, for the glory of his name. For the praise of his glory. I did this for my name's sake. How is he going to show the riches of his glory? In kindness toward us that will take an eternity for him to pour out. We have much to be thankful for. We have much to worship for the endless wonders of his grace in Jesus Christ. We have, and we experience that new life in the, in the kindness of God as we receive Jesus Christ the Lord and as we walk in him, resting in Christ, remaining in him, rooted and, and built up and established in him, 
overflowing with thanksgiving. Then he turns to the other side of the coin. We must receive Christ, remain in Christ. And then on the other hand, he says we must reject the world. There's point two, reject the world. Look at verse eight. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. So see to it. That ought to kind of catch our eyes. This is significant. Be on guard. Be, be diligent. Be cautious. Be wary. That no one takes you captive. How are we taken Captive. Well, I think we're taken captive in ways that we don't realize. We think we're exercising our freedom as we're being taken captive. He doesn't dignify um, the, the false teachers by naming them, but this is the first of, of three specific warnings against the false teachers of Colossae that we'll see throughout this chapter. And he accuses them of philosophy and empty deceit. Now that word philosophy, when we hear philosophy, we think of that class you had to take in college that was just confusing and annoying. Um, Maybe you like philosophy. I got tired right away. Um, But we think of Nietzsche, Kant, Sartre. Um, But the word is broader than that. It literally just means the love of wisdom. And so historically, um, it's been a much broader category. Religion would be included in that kind of umbrella of philosophy. Basically, it's just a, a way of seeing the world. It's your, it's your worldview. It's the, it's the glasses through which you look at life. The basic way of understanding reality. And Paul says that this particular philosophy uh, is empty deceit. It's empty deceit. And he unpacks why it's empty deceit. It's a philosophy. It's a, it's a way of understanding and seeing and interacting with the world around us that is based on human tradition and based on the elemental spirits of this world. And you think, well, what on earth does that mean? Uh, good question. Uh, there's tons of debate over exactly what Paul means by that. There are pages and pages of, uh, of banter back and forth over it. Um, and you'll see that as you look at different translations. The NASB says the, the elemental principles. Uh, the NIV says the elemental spiritual forces. Um, I hope um, the ESV has at least a, uh, a little footnote there. So it says the, the elemental spirits, and then you check the footnote, and it says or, or principles. And, and the reason it's just not clear between those two is that language changes over time, right? The way we use words. And so, you know... Your son comes home and says, man, I just saw this video. It was wicked. Um, he means something different than your parents said when they, now maybe not, maybe there's overlap, but that's a different story, um, right? It, 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 these, these words change over time. And so um, that's, that's kind of, this word was in the middle of changing before Paul's day. Um, it was used pretty consistently to speak of the basic elements of the world. The, the, the root word itself just means like the fundamental pieces. And so like the letters in the alphabet are the, are the elemental principles of writing. Um, and, and so they used it in, in philosophy context to mean the, the elements, right? Earth, wind, fire, water, like we, we know different religions that kind of dabble with this stuff. You saw Frozen 2. I'm, I'm not going to make theological comment on Disney sequels. That's just one step too far, but that's what we're talking about. Um, the, these, the basic elements of this world. 
The catch is, shortly after Paul's time, that, that same word kind of began to take on a, a spiritual connotations, and it was used of, of spiritual forces, the, the basic spiritual powers of the world that came into astrology and some of these things. And so um, you see in the context, Paul makes a couple references to uh, the, the, the demonic powers, and so it makes sense that maybe that's what he's talking about, but it's just not clear. Um, bottom line is, after all of that, it doesn't really matter. Um, so thanks, John. Um, there's two minutes of my life I'll never get back. Um, the problem is, it's not on Christ, right? Whether it's physical elements or elemental principles or elemental spirits, it's not Christ. And the reality is, any worldview, any way of seeing this world that is not built on Christ, the reality is it is demonic. That is the work of the enemy, shifting our focus off of Christ and onto other things. Uh, Satan doesn't care if he gets the glory as long as Christ doesn't. He's happy to have you um, looking at physical things rather than spiritual. So Paul says, remain in Christ and reject the world. Reject it. Listen, we are surrounded by philosophy and empty deceit that is founded on, on human tradition. It's founded on the, the basic principles of this world. It's all around us. And most obvious are the, these different false religions. We, we see Islam and, and Buddhism and Hinduism and Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism, and the list goes on and on and on. Often not listed among the religions, but absolutely should be, is atheism. That was all around us. We are incessantly taught and, and shoved down our throats a philosophy of life that is rooted in the ground of evolution. Why is that? Why, why is it so important that evolution is taught in the schools as fact? Because it's the first foundational principle of a world without God. A world where we can be God. Where we can decide what's right and wrong because if there's no creator, then there's no judge. And I far prefer a world with no judge and so evolution must be true. Don't question it. It's religion. It's a worldview that is not rooted in Christ. We're constantly being told how to, how to see the world beyond even just religions. But we're being told what's important. What should you value? What will make your life complete? Right? There, there are these overt commercials. Buy this product. Go to this place. And your life will be made just a little more full. But it's also more subtle than that. More pervasive than that. It's really just the, the air we breathe culturally. It's all around us. The music, the movies, the, the YouTube videos, Facebook, the, the news, the, they all are presenting a, a philosophy, a way of, of understanding the world, a, a hierarchy of what is most valuable, a promise of what will give you joy. And, and, and boy, we just have to be so naive and delusional to think that we can live in this world and not be affected by that. You've got to realize we are in a fast-moving river, and if you are not working hard to get upstream, you're going downstream. That's just the way it works. You don't stay still. There's a strong pull today. That, that you'll have the fulfilled life as long as you champion the right causes, right? If you want to be accepted in this world, if you want to go far, if you want to be appreciated as a decent human being, then you need to be fighting the right fight. You need to take up the fight against racism through the lens of, of critical race theory. 
You need to become a, a climate warrior. You ought to be vegan and driving a Tesla. I don't know if you notice the abundance of rainbows around us these days. But it's Gay Pride Month and every decent human being and organization and anything else not only must tolerate the, the homosexual agenda, but must actively support it. If you don't do that, you're not going anywhere in this world. You're not going to be accepted. You're not going to do well. Those are significant pressures in our world. Those are philosophies and empty deceit that are, that are pulling against us. They're rooted in the, the elemental principles of this world and not in Christ. Now, those are the ones that I, I hope we see easily. We see those at a, at a distance and we identify them, most of them. What are the things that really threaten to take you captive? What are the ones that come in under the radar? When you think about your version of that complete life and what that would be, what comes to mind? If I could just have a wife who could keep my house clean and keep the kids obedient, then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be truly happy. Or if I I could just lose a few more pounds, if I could just put on a little more muscle, if I could just fix my appearance, the right clothes, the right hair, if I could just get my house decorated and set up the right way or get the right house or the right car, work on my image and how people saw me, then, then I would be satisfied. If I could just get the right job, if I could just get a spouse, if I could just get on the, the right vacation, that would scratch the itch. That would, that would do it. And those things creep in on us. They, they begin to take hold of our hearts. And, and, and it, some of those things are fine and of themselves. I'm not saying those are evil things. But they are when they become ruling desires in our lives. When they begin to displace Christ rather than serve Christ. They become a problem. And we try to find the, the complete life in these things rather than in Jesus. The, the, the cart gets turned upside down. We need to be Standing guard. See to it. Be aware. Be, be consciously engaging this fight. Constantly identifying things in your heart because there will always be things in your heart that are trying to take you captive. You need to recognize it and reject it. I've been operating as if fixing my marriage is what's going to truly give me joy. I need to fix my walk with Christ and let Him work on my marriage. I've been behaving as if success at work and, and prosperity at work, that's what's going to give me ultimate joy. I, I need to serve the Lord in my work and glorify Him. I get angry because I seem to believe that, that controlling the situation around me is what is going to give me the good life that I desire. I need to give that control up to Christ. Remaining in Him, being rooted and built up on, in Him uh, letting his transforming work uh, happen in me, transforming my, my marriage, my, my work, my anger, and serving him. These things can be so hard to see. It can be really difficult to, to understand our own hearts in this way. They are, they're deceitful. They seem so significant, but, but they're powerless to bring us ultimate joy. Because that desire for worldly things, it's, it's built on human tradition and it's built on the basic principles of this world and not on Christ. 
So we need to remain in Christ, being rooted and, and built up in him, establishing the faith, abounding in thanksgiving. We need to be constantly rejecting the things of this world, uh, identifying uh, and, and fighting against those lies that start to grab onto us. And then finally, we need to reckon Christ as sufficient. Verses 9 and 10. Paul says, For in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This is why every other philosophy, every other thing that we would set our hearts on, every other worldview um, leaves us lacking, leaves us wanting, doesn't finally satisfy even the, the good things of life. If we make them ultimate things, if we put them in the place of Christ, will eventually leave us in shambles because of who Jesus is. Because in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. It's reminding us again of that, that Christ hymn from chapter 1 that, that Jesus is God himself. He's the creator, sustainer of the universe. That, that all of creation is ultimately culminating in him. That, that in all things he will be preeminent. He's the reconciler. In him all things will be reconciled to God. And, and I love Augustine's point here that, that Paul uses the word bodily here, not just to highlight the incarnation that, that, that God took on flesh, but to help us in our weakness, um, to show us the sense of reality of it. Like this isn't a myth. This isn't some kind of mystical, ethereal, spiritual truth. God himself actually dwelt bodily, physically among us. And then verse 10, he's the head of all rule and authority. There is no person higher, greater, he's it. He's the top. There's nothing more than him. And here's the crux, in him, in that Jesus Christ the Lord, you, you, believer, you have been filled, filled to, to overflowing. You have been made complete in him. Jesus Christ, who is preeminent over all things, he is the greatest, best, most glorious thing there ever was, is, or will be. All of creation is driving toward its climactic culmination in him, and you are in him. Believer, whatever you think you need for a full, meaningful life, whatever you desire, whatever grabs your heart that makes you believe this is what's going to satisfy me? Reality is you have it. You have it already. John 17, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Eternal life, infinite life, both in length and in fullness and breadth and richness is found in this knowing God in Jesus Christ. You know God through Christ. You already have everything you need. You've been made complete in him. And that's why I say that the third piece of, of living in this glorious new life is not actually to do anything, but rather simply to reckon Christ as sufficient. 
The reality is it's already done. In Christ, you have the full, complete, abundant abundant life that you desire. It's been given to you in full. And so all that's lacking is that we reckon it to be true. Now we finally get to the question you've been wondering. Why on earth did he use the word reckon? Is he that hard up for another R? Um, No, I think it's the right word. Um, Best I can tell, it comes to me via my mom's old King James Bible. uh, Romans 6, 11, Paul says, reckon yourselves dead to sin, alive to God in Christ Jesus. Um, But but it's the perfect word here. To, To reckon means, it's correlated to the idea of to reconcile. You reconcile the books. You add up all the numbers and you do the math and you you show the truth clearly. You count it up. You reckon something to be true is to investigate it, to come to a settled conclusion on it, and then to hold to that truth, to firmly believe it. That's what Paul's telling us to do here. He says, walk in Christ, remain in him, throw throw out all the deceitful substitutes of this world, reject the world, um, but, but because Christ is enough. Because in Jesus is everything that we were longing for, is everything we wanted. What you need is not to go looking for it, go hunting after it, but to count up the riches you have in Christ. Tally it up. To see him for who he truly is. To realize that you already have what you truly desire. Realize it's possible for you to long for something that you already have, right? We all do that. Where's my phone, right? I left my phone on my front pew. I need my phone. Where is it at? Hold on a second. Maybe I can, uh, let's see, turn on my flashlight. This will help me. Now I can, where did that phone go? And we look around and, and finally someone says, uh, it's in your hand. Oh, yeah, yeah, there we go. We long for something and, and you have it already. We've been hunting and looking and, and toiling to, to find it, but you've got it. You don't need to do anything. You need to to reckon it to be true, to realize what you have. And the reality is if you are in Christ, if you've received him as Savior and Lord, you have life in full. You just need to realize it. You just need to see and explore and and, and count up the riches in Christ and, and realize it's him who fills all things and he has already made you complete. What are you longing for? What are the holes in your life? When you sit alone with your thoughts in the darkness and, and, and you wonder, what are the things that maybe you're scared even to think about that? The fears and feelings that you don't even want to admit exist because it feels like if I were to give in to, to thinking about that, I'm just worried the darkness would just take over. There may not be any escape from the pit. Because I feel so lacking, so in despair. This world is filled with disappointments, with unfulfilled dreams, with deep wounds and losses and hurts. It promises countless ways to find fulfillment. Endless number of things that will serve to, to fill your heart. But they're feeble. They're counterfeits. They're Broken cisterns, they're mirages of hope that are, that are rooted in human tradition and, and the basic principles of this world. Don't, don't be deceived. They will not be enough. They will not satisfy. 
They will leave you thirstier in the end than you were at the beginning. Look to Christ. Learn to love him. Be rooted and built up in him. Count your blessings in him and look at what we have and what lies in store. You are filled in him. Jesus is enough. Christ is the only thing that will satisfy and he will satisfy fully and completely now and into eternity. Remain in him. Rooted and built up, established in the faith, abounding in thanksgiving, pursuing him, growing in him. Reject the world. Turn away from those empty promises. Be constantly cutting those things out of your heart and reckon Christ as sufficient. Count the blessings you have in him, the richness we have in Christ, because he is enough. Would you pray with me? Father, Father,